0: Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. out. I hope you have your Bible. Get it out. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 18 and finish the chapter. So I have a lot to cover today. So today's probably a little more teachy than preachy, uh, but I really hope that the Lord uh, enlightens his word and applies it to your life. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible, it's probably one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you, man. We would love for you to have a copy of the word of God. How many of you uh, have in the past binge watched something? Raise your hand. Okay. So most of you, how many of you are in the middle of binge watching something like Right now right I'm like hopefully not like right now like huh ha- oh pastor did you say something you know but uh so my wife and daughter have enjoyed binge watching a couple shows uh together and and I'm like an annoying gnat flying around their head right I, I'm not really into it but I'm far I'm close enough to have some idea that like a plane disappeared and came back five years later you know how many are like oh I know you know like I get these weird callings, and I'm like, this is, and I sit there long enough to just go like, this is so stupid, you know, and then I walk out, you know, and then I go watch Iron Man as if that's a real thing, you know, like, you know, whatever, but, um, so, you know, so today, uh, like me being loosely interested in what my wife and daughter are binge-watching, Uh, Today is a a really stern warning to people who would say that they're Christians but are loosely following Jesus Christ. And and I'm not here to declare whether that does or doesn't make you a Christian. I don't even think the scriptures makes it definitive. But the scriptures are warning against that kind of pursuit of Jesus. And, And so, and it's because Uh, If you understand the message of the gospel and you understand the person and work of Christ, there's almost no way to kind of loosely follow Jesus. I read a statistic this week that said the average American Christian now attends a corporate worship service once every six weeks right? That's less than 10 times a year. And, and I would call that loosely being interested in Jesus Christ. And, and the reason that it, we it, the, the scriptures warn against this kind of pursuit of Christ is really in found in the gospel message itself. I mean, what is the gospel message? That you're a sinner and you deserve the punishment of God, but God in his grace sent his son. God in his grace, gave you his very best gift. Jesus, the God-man, took on flesh and set foot on the planet. Amen? Amen. Scripture said he had nowhere to lay his head. And he He lived a perfect life without sin. And then he was crucified. And because he was perfect, he was a perfect substitution to pay a penalty for my sin and your sin that he didn't owe And God the Father poured out his wrath and his hatred for our sin on Jesus instead of me. Instead of you, where Jesus is on the cross going, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bears the weight of your sin. And then they lay his body in a grave. How many of y'all have done a funeral this year? Or went to a funeral, lost a loved one, right? They laid Jesus' body in a grave and three days later he stepped out of it. And we attend a corporate worship service once out of six weeks, like yawning our way through it. Huh? that's nice. Have we lost our minds? This is the most incredible story on the planet, if it's true. Amen? And it should affect everything about our lives. And so John is warning this morning with this kind of an apathetic faith that I can fall into and you can fall into if we're not careful. Right To guard our faith and bumper guard it with some biblical things that keep us affectionate towards Christ. And so this morning, let's dive in. Here we go, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, I love John's by the way. He's writing to Christians. He's reminding them they're in the family of God. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you. Not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. I think what John is encouraging us to consider here is the test of a true Christian. So today is a a little bit of a mirror to your life to see if you're indeed in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes here. And it's not really a rabbit trail because it's in the text, but I have to rabbit trail it a little bit, and I want to talk about eschatology, okay? How many of y'all have heard that word, eschatology? It literally means the study of last things. A lot of you, if you've grown up in church, you you would use the language, a lot of the language we use is end times, end times stuff, okay? And there are four, what I would call evangelical view of eschatology or last things, all right? There's what I would call the dispensational premillennial view. How many of y'all like say that every week? You make sure you say somewhere, you meet a friend, you're like, hey, are you a dispensational premillennialist? And just see what they say, all right? There's the historical premillennial view, there's the amillennial view, and there's the postmillennial view. All four of these views I would call evangelical, okay? So you can go to church here and hold that, and you would be inside of our statements of faith. It's the idea that Jesus is coming again. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Some do eternal life. Some do eternal punishment. He's going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. All four of those believe that. They get bound up, in the differences are in the details, Okay. Uh, the first one is the one that has been most prevalent over the last hundred years—the dispensational premillennial view—in especially in Western church culture. Okay, and so out of this view—and by the way, this is the view. That uh, I think I've actually think it's done some damage in the Church of America eschatologically and in their thinking. Okay, so this is the view I least hold to, uh, but this is the view that has birthed the Left Behind series. How many of y'all have read Left Behind series? So now some of you are like, "Whoa, wait a minute! This really shaped my thinking." All right, now you just undermined it. I think this view actually has some detail problems that I would take issue with. Okay, so some of you are like, "Which view do you believe, Sean?" I'm not going to tell you. Okay, so. Um, What I think we can pull out of this text, though, that all four of these views eschatologically would agree with is letter A. Okay, John reminds this church that they're living in the last hour. And the last hour, as Christians, should remind us to live with some urgency. Now, whenever you're reading your New Testament and it talks about last hours kind of talk, I want to remind you that John here is talking theologically and not chronologically. So let me say that again. John here is talking theologically and not chronologically. In other words, since Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we, as the people of us Christians, have been in the final act of the final movement of God, Everybody with me on that? Okay, so Old Testament, Adam and Eve fall into sin. They disobey the Lord, and God goes to work to redeem mankind. And all of the Old Testament is a signpost pointing to the promises that there's going to be a Messiah that's going to save us from our sin. Everybody with me on that? So Old Testament signpost pointing to Christ. Christ, the Messiah, comes. Now, this was the mind blower, to the Jews, as Jesus was doing ministry, that the, the coming of the Messiah was actually a two-step process, right? At Christmas time, we call the coming of Christ. We call it Advent, right? What does Advent mean? Anybody know? It means coming, right? And so coming, Advent, first Advent. As Christians, we are now waiting for what? Second coming. Second Advent. Okay? And so there's this two-step process of the redemption of man that God has been doing since Christ walked the earth. And we see this in John chapter 3. All right? Now I'm sure many of you have John chapter 3:16 memorized, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever in life, okay? Then in John 3:17 Jesus says this, very important to the at the first advent. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. So first advent is about giving everybody an opportunity to repent of their sins and overcome the last great enemy death, okay? And to be saved from the penalty of their sins. And then in John 3:18 Jesus teaches basically the idea of the second coming, the second advent. When Christ comes a second time, he's going to vanquish all of his enemies. He's going to fully and finally establish his kingdom. We're in the now and not yet of the kingdom. He's going to fully and finally establish it. Some to eternal life, some to eternal punishment, to the new, and those in eternal life will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. And so in John 3 18, he says, Whoever believes in him, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Why are they condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is judgment. Second advent, right? First advent, salvation. Second advent, judgment. Here's the judgment. What are people going to be judged on? You ready? The light has come into the world. Who's the light? Jesus has come into the world. Jesus claimed this. I'm the light of the world. The light has come into the world, but guess what? People love the what, church? They love the darkness rather than the light because their works for The second advent, people will be judged on what they did with Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. And so we are in the last hour. God has done all that's needed to happen for the return of Christ, okay? Four eschatological views. Here's some of my problems with number one. We are not waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. We are not waiting for Israel to become a nation. We are not waiting for red cattle to be born or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here, right? All that needs to happen has happened, and Christ can return at any moment. Amen? And by the way, that has some really practical touches that I'm going to get to in a minute. So... Some of you may be saying, well, if Christ can return at any moment, what would be your next question? Why hasn't he? What's taking so long? Okay. Well, the apostle Peter speaks to that. So check this out. First Peter chapter three, verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is what? How long? And a thousand years is as a what? In other words, God doesn't exist in time. Okay, you ready for me to blow your mind? What if it takes a week for Jesus to return? <sighs> like we're like in the third inning, right? I'm not making a prediction because the Bible tells us cautions us against going to make a prediction. We don't know. So what's taking Jesus so long? Well, Peter answers that. The Lord, verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is what, church, Being patient. Why? Towards you. And towards your lost child. And your lost neighbor and your lost coworker and your lost grandchild that you've been praying for, that they would come to know Jesus. He's patient toward you. Not sorry, I have a sucker in my mouth, so I'm not coughing all over He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should do what? Repent, right? Reach repentance. Now, to make sure that we don't think that the coming of Christ is a long way away and therefore we can do whatever we want, Peter buffers this idea. It could be a long time, but maybe it's not. He buffers our thinking in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what is Peter doing? As Christians, We're in the last hour. We've been in the last hour since Jesus ascended into heaven, and he can come, and here's the theological word we use. It's imminent. He could come at any time. It could be a long time. Therefore, save for your retirement. Okay? Build hospitals. Do food distributions. Plant churches. Spread the gospel. It could be a while, but it could be imminent. Everybody with me? And these are the tensions that we live between until Christ returns. We do that to the honor and the glory of the Lord. And if you get one way or the other too far out of balance, you can get out of balance. Jesus told us he didn't even know the hour. We're not supposed to predict the hour. I remember about eight or ten years ago, maybe longer now, maybe 15 years ago, there was a some guy, he got famous. This was pre-internet, so I don't know how he got famous, but he had <clears throat> predicted the return of Christ to the hour and date. It was a Saturday evening, actually. And uh, and so, you know, it's kind of that t- time and date stuck in my mind. And so I'm driving home. I don't remember where I was. I was driving home. I think it was like 6 p.m. on a Saturday evening. I'm driving home, and I'm like, 6 p.m., 6 p.m. I'm still here. Oh, no. And so, you know, I start to panic, you know. And, uh, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going to call the most faith-filled spiritual person that I know. I'm going to call my wife. And so I call my wife, and she doesn't pick up the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, I knew it! I knew I was going to be left behind, the kind of thing. And I get home, and she, I walk in the door, and she's like, you're such an idiot. So we live in these tensions, right? By the way, a couple quick thoughts about the idea of the return of Christ being imminent, that he can come at any moment. We should live in obedience, church. I remember when I was a young single guy, really reflecting and meditating on the idea of the return of Christ could become come at any moment. And and I remember having this thought and applying it to my dating as a single man. And I remember thinking, if Christ could return at any moment, what do I want to be caught doing when I'm out on a date? Do I want to be caught dating in holiness and righteousness, or do I want to be caught indulging my flesh? And would I be embarrassed? See, as Christians, this should shape our temptations, you're struggling with pornography and temptation comes. You open that phone and you open your laptop. What do you want to be caught doing if Christ returns? And by the way, this, is, this requires a really full orbed picture of what it means to worship the Lord. It's why we call this time corporate worship, not just worship, but corporate worship. All of life as a Christian is worship. Right? So if you're parenting well, you're at work and Christ returns, you could be worshiping God. If you're parenting well, you could be worshiping God. If you're sleeping, you could be worshiping God. Right? There's all, everything in life that God has given us to do in holiness and righteousness is worship as Christians. And so we want to be caught worshiping the Lord. Christian, this also gives us an urgency to our lives. Evangelism. Christ could come at any time. Man, how, how horrible would it be? For Christ to return and your neighbor doesn't know Christ, and they're like, What? Why didn't you tell me? Right? Your co-worker. There should be an urgency to our evangelism. there should be an urgency to our church involvement. Listen, I, you should have hobbies. God created hobbies, they're good, but if your hobbies or everything else is overwhelming, there's no margin in your life to serve your local church. You, there, you're missing something. There's a, the, your life is out of order and out of perspective. We're to use our time, talent, and treasure to worship the Lord and everything. All right, second eschatological conversation is the word antichrist, okay? That shows up in this passage. That gets imported with all kinds of thinking by most American Christians, okay? So letter B, the antichrist. I think what John is encouraging us to do is to know our enemy here, to know our enemy. Only John uses the word antichrist. Paul does not use that language. And I think a lot of times, especially in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2, we import the word that John uses that the apostle Paul doesn't use, okay? And so, in this context, John is not simply talking about the future. He's actually talking about something that's happening in the current church, yes? You can see that here very clearly right he's talking about something that's happening even in our culture now secondly i believe that this text hints at the possibility of an individual but it also seems to be a group they went out from us okay and third i think this is less about a person and more about a heresy a misunderstanding of Jesus, a heresy that causes a group of people to depart from the church, deny the faith, and attempt, and also attempt to confuse other believers. So all of that was introduction to point one. Okay, so here we go. Let, somebody like, we are never getting out of here. Okay, one of the things you know is I have another service to do, so you're getting out of here. Okay, so here you go. Letter C. All right, so what is the point? Over, with that as an overview of point one, here's a couple tests for true believers. Letter C. True Christians stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 of 1 John chapter 2, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Christian, incredibly, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. Okay, let me say that again. If you're a Christian, incredibly, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. Isn't that amazing? Did you know in John chapter 14 to 17, as Jesus is doing his, high, his last sermon to his apostles, his high priestly prayer, he actually says to the disciples, it would be better if I go away. Can you imagine that? Like how many of us would be like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus was right here in our building bodily right now? Wouldn't that be awesome? And Jesus says, actually, it's not as awesome as you think because the whole, if I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to be in the hearts of believers. So guess what? We have a Jesus movement in Czechoslovakia as Pastor Nate preaches there today. Isn't that great news? All over the world, the Holy Spirit is in the, in the hearts and lives of believers as a deposit. How many of you own a home? Raise your hand. How many of you own a home? How many of you have a mortgage? Okay, most, some of you all raised your hand twice, right? Do you own the home or not, right, ish? right? Ish. I own it ish. Every mortgage payment I make, I own a little more of the back of my yard, right? Like, I'm, I'm like, I hey, now I own this piece. I'll mow it. I'll take better care of it kind of thing, right? The Holy Spirit is a deposit of the ownership of God in your life. Isn't that cool? That's the language the New Testament uses. It's a deposit. And did you ever wonder if you watch a friend of yours or someone you love dearly get cancer or get so they're suffering and as they're suffering they suffer incredibly well have you ever seen that happen like you go like you have a friend they're dying of cancer you, you go over to encourage them and then you leave like what was that i am so encouraged you ever had that happen what is that and then do you ever walk out going i wonder if i have cancer if i would have that kind of courage and strength do you ever wonder that and the answer is you will and I call it future grace. You don't get the grace you need until, you sh- until the suffering comes and then the Holy Spirit's in you and gives you the grace you need in the moment you need it. Isn't that cool? John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said this. He said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. By the way, this is almost verbatim what John said to this church, that the Holy Spirit is with you. The test of a true Christian is the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Letter D. The test of true Christians is that they stand on the word of God. Verse 21 of John chapter 2. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but what? You know it because no lie is of the truth. We stand on God's word. Listen, when I heard the statistic that... Christians, people that are saying they're Christians, only go to church once every six weeks. I'm like, it is no wonder the church is being swallowed up by the world in America right now. We don't even know the word of God. You have to attend corporate worship every single week. Let me say that again. Christian, you need to attend corporate worship every single week. Week. I get it. Maybe you're traveling. I get that. So, 40, let's call it 45 times a year. So that the Word of God washes over you and changes, and you're standing on it. You need to unpack the Word of God in, in, in small groups in relationship with other Christians and apply it to your life. You need to be in a small group where the Word of God washes over you throughout the week. You need to read the Word of God every single day. The test of a Christian is that we're standing on the Word of God. Okay, number two. Second thing I want you to see here. Second truth on which John is encouraging us to stand is the truth on which we stand. 1 John 2 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son. Has the Father also? What what John is talking about here is really the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the things that makes a cult a cult is that they mess up the doctrine of the Trinity. I think a lot of times we think a cult believes weird things. How, how many of you came in here thinking a cult believes weird things? Raise your hand if that. No. Okay, listen. If you're a Christian, you believe weird things. Okay? So, this is not about believing weird or mystical or supernatural things. It's about what you do with the doctrine of the Trinity. And John here calls the idea of messing up the doctrine of the Trinity the spirit of the antichrist. Now, I can't explain the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, but I believe it and we hold to it. That God is one. He's one God. He's revealed himself in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, Christ, since his time on earth, is both 100% God and 100% man. And to deny those truths is to have a spirit of the Antichrist. That's why a Christian cannot take a stand on the idea that there's multiple ways to God. You with me? That's the spirit of Antichrist. Acts 4, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's one way. Jesus, John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the... Nobody comes through the Father except but through me. So we can't run around the community and accept the idea. We're not violent, we're not protesting, But we're convicted, and we stand on our convictions. There is one way to God, and that's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to to deny that is the spirit of Antichrist, letter A. We stand on the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Did you know the word Christ is not Jesus' last name? It's a title. It means anointed one, the special one sent from God, the Messiah. Letter B. For Jesus to be an adequate savior to save us from the penalty of our sin, he has to be both God and man. The importance of Jesus being fully God and fully man. I have this on your notes. I don't even think they're blanks. I just wanted you to have it to take with you. The the importance of Jesus being fully God is first of all, he has to be fully God to be a sufficient sacrifice for sin. Now, we're, we're on a preaching retreat Uh, We were talking about doing a a sermon series on our gospel presentation. We say this over and over and over. Hopefully, you guys are memorizing this. So that when you go to share with a neighbor or a friend the gospel, you know how to share it. Three things about the gospel. Jesus is what? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then Jesus what? And it's very important. Bodily rose from the grave. And so when you're presenting that gospel message to someone and they want to respond to the gospel, what do they do? Three things. They what? Repent. They believe believe the core facts of the gospel, and they receive Christ into their life. Okay, and then when Christ comes in, they get the Holy Spirit, and the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus is God has all kinds of theological implications. Like that's, I could do a three part, three or four part series just on that. Jesus is God, so important to us, right? He's God. It makes Him a sufficient sacrifice for sin. Only salvation from sin can come from God. Let me say that again. Only salvation from sin can come from from, from God. You can't save yourself. Last night, my, my daughter and I were driving back from Maryland, and we were at a light, parked behind a car, and there was a bumper sticker on the car that said, you are enough. And my daughter looked at me. I was so happy, man. I was like a little theological, you know, smarty pants. She's like, that's a really bad saying. I said, why do you say that? You know, we began to unpack it. She's right. Now, listen, I get the spirit behind you are enough. The problem is you are a sinner, as Pastor Spencer prayed this morning, right? And so even though... And by the way, you are unique. You're created in the image of God. That does make every human being special. But we're also sinners, We need Christ to save us. And once we're saved, you're actually better than you think you are. You will let yourself down. And if you think you are enough and then you let yourself down, where are you going to go? But once you're a Christian, you're adopted into the family of God. And that makes you a prince or a princess of the most high God. You are way better off than you think you are. Amen. Christ is enough. And Christ exalts our platform higher than you can exalt it yourself. Only God can save us from sin. Only someone truly God can be a sufficient mediator between God and man. Right? So when you pray and you finish your prayer, how do you finish your prayer? Why do you say in Jesus' name? Because you don't belong in the presence of God. Exodus 33 says, no man can see God and live. You need a high priest, a mediator between God and man. One of the things that's so weird about being a pastor is everywhere I go, like every meal, hey, our pastor's here, let him pray. I've already got my plate of food. I've already started eating. I'm like, somebody else pray. I'm already violating the 11th commandment somewhere, you know, like... You don't need Sean to pray. You have a high priest. You enter into the presence of God in the high priest's name, in Jesus' name. Amen? And only God can be a satisfactory high priest, which is Jesus. The importance of Jesus being human. He was born of a virgin, so he takes on flesh, but he's born of a virgin, so he doesn't have the original sin of an earthly father. By the way, Coastal will not partner with any ministry that doesn't hold to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ministries out there chucking this one because it's mysterious. Man, this is essential to our salvation. And as our high priest, as a human high priest, he identifies with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4. He was tempted in all our ways, but without sin. Number three, the third reason it's important that Jesus has a human nature is Jesus redeems or is in the process of redeeming the physical world. Did you know the physical world is not bad? Did you know that? Right? That's Gnosticism. It's only spiritual. That's a lie. It's physical and spiritual. It's both. That's why bodily resurrection is so important. You are going to get when Jesus returns, a glorified body forever and ever and ever. Isn't that amazing? And, and no more aches and pains and brokenness and breaking down. And It's going to be incredible. And so John gives these, this church some simple but powerful safeguards against, against straying from the faith, which is number three, safeguards against straying from the faith. Let's go. I only got a couple of minutes here. Let what you heard, John says, from the beginning abide in you. What's he talking about? What did you hear from the beginning that should be abiding in you? Anybody? The gospel, right? So when you become a Christian, you repent of sin, you believe in Jesus, and the righteousness, in other words, the perfect life that Jesus lived, his perfect works, his perfect law keeping, he kept all 10 commandments perfectly, his righteousness gets credited to your spiritual bank account by grace alone through faith alone. And so now in Christ, God no longer sees you as a wretched, broken sinner. He sees you as in clothed in Christ's righteousness. Isn't that cool? That's the doctrine of justification, the gospel. Then we're in this process of growing to be more like Jesus. So our sin nature, even as Christians, is still with us, and we're growing to be more like Jesus. And when we stumble and fall, because we will, what is it that picks us up and keeps us going? The gospel, right? I'm still a sinner, God. Forgive me my sin. I, man, there's a promise of God. I didn't trust in that. There's a temptation that I God, by the power of the Spirit, has gifted me the ability to overcome, but I didn't overcome and I And I just, I need the cross. I need Christ Right now in my journey, the gospel saves us, the gospel sanctifies us, and finally, the gospel glorifies us. It is Jesus from beginning to end. Amen? So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Talk about intimacy. And this is the promise that he's made to us. Here's the glorification part. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as the anointing teaches you the Holy Spirit about everything that is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. Here it is. Ready? Letter A. Treasure the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Man, it's so simple. The gospel message is so simple. You're a sinner and you need saving from your sin and you repent of your sin and you believe in God's rescue plan, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you'll be saved. And you know what? It's so simple that you Christian parents, your young children get it. Right, And some point along the way, they disobey and they grieve their sin. They come to you like, I'm sorry, what's wrong with me? And you explain Jesus to them and they're like, I want to be a Christian now. And suddenly your young child is a Christian. This is why the world scoffs at the gospel. Man wants to raise its intellect and human wisdom above the simplicity of the gospel. Amen? Come on, it can't be that simple. Yet it's so profound. It's simple, yet if if it loses its profundity to you, that is what John is warning this church about. Abide. It's so profound that even as a person like myself that's been a Christian for over forty years, I still I remind myself of my own ability still to sin, and I fear that, and I treasure Christ, and I'm mindful that the Holy Spirit, which I've already kind of covered, lives in me. Let her be. That I abide in the gospel, and the Holy Spirit reminds me of the gospel, and it causes me to treasure Jesus Christ. Which then leads to number four, which is the result of these safeguards of abiding in Christ, abiding in the word, the Holy Spirit living in me. The result of these safeguards is found in 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So here's the deal, right? One day Christ is going to return. What do you want to have confidence in? That you're doing it right? Or do you want to have confidence in the fact that Jesus did it right? Amen. One day when God when God, well, listen, the reason Christians don't fear the final judgment, if you If you think you're standing there in your own works, you should be terrified. But what did Paul say in Romans 8, right? There is therefore now what? No condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because God said so. If you're in Christ, you get credited the righteousness of Jesus. His works become yours. They get deposited into your spiritual bank account. You didn't do anything to earn it. God gave it to you. And so one day, as a Christian, when you stand before final judgment, we don't fear the return of Christ. It's because when if if I start, you know, I'm gonna stand before God, I'm gonna God, the only reason i deserve deserved to get in the heavens is because you said so. I'm trusting your word that I received Christ and therefore I have eternal life. His perfect righteousness is now gifted to me by grace through faith. But if Christ is in me, letter B, John says, then guess what? We should be walking and growing in righteousness. Here's the language I'll use, and I'll finish this up now. We should be taking on the family resemblance. If you're in Christ, you're not, you're not the person like, like Sean is like the gnat flying around someone's head and my, is my wife and daughter watching the binge watch show, and I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm kind of vested. I'm kind, we're not that person. We're a person that's like, man, I understand the gospel, and it's simple, and it's profound at the same time. It never loses its wonder with me. And if Jesus is our all in all, then guess what? We're taking on the family resemblance. All right, I want to bring the worship team up. And while they're coming, okay, worship team, come on up. I don't want you guys to be distracted, so everybody look at me. Okay, I want everybody's eyes. And I want to ask you a question Are you growing in family resemblance? Because that's what John is really asking. He's kind of holding up a mirror to this church. He says, if you're in Christ, you abide in Christ, you should be growing in family resemblance. I don't know about you, you probably had this happen too, right? Where someone sees your kid, or you show up a picture of your family, someone sees a picture of your family, like, man, you really have so, You have a beautiful family. Anybody ever said that to you? Probably have, right? You have a beautiful family. That's a beautiful daughter you have. I mean, your, your kids, your boys, they look... And so here's my... I have a very humble response to that when someone says that to me you have a beautiful family. I always humbly say, well, beautiful people make beautiful people.
1: So that's my response, right?
0: <laughs> we should be taking on the family resemblance. We should be taking on the fa- family resemblance. If you're not taking on the family resemblance, and there's a couple questions you should ask. Number one, what is keeping you from being fully invested in Jesus Christ? Or maybe a second question, follow-up to that would be, what is it that you're loving more than Jesus? Because last week we talked about, this. so remember, this is a letter that would be read in the church, so it would just be progression. Last week we talked about the things of the world, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Those things will rob you from keeping and being fully invested in Jesus. Or, If you're not taking on the family resemblance, I think it's fair to ask the question, am I in the family? Maybe I'm not yet a Christian. And so there's three groups of people here this morning. You're a Christian, but you've been loving the world. And because you've been loving the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, because you've been loving the world, loving your sin more than Jesus, you're not growing in family resemblance. So today we need to drive a stake in the ground and go, you know what? I I need to turn from the things of the world and treasure, abide in the gospel afresh and anew. Or second group of people here today, you're not even in the family yet. You're not yet a Christian. And as I'm talking about being a Christian, treasuring Christ, you're like, I don't treasure Christ. But you're here today and God's working on your heart. Listen, you can all, both groups, both one and two can be a part of group number three. Group number three is the group that says, I'm a Christian and I'm clinging to the gospel and I'm praising God for Jesus every moment of every day. And on the moments I don't do it perfectly, I repent of my sin and I come back and go, man, I need to cling to Jesus. That's group number three. If you're in group number one or group number two, I'm going to get an opportunity right now to be in group number three. You can leave here going, man, I am treasuring Christ above all else. Okay, so let's bow our heads and pray. I want to invite the prayer team up. If you need to talk to someone about this afterwards, do that. Our prayer team, prayer team, come on up under the screens. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go out singing. And we're going to sing and this song is going to remind us to treasure Christ. And so, Father, for the one that's here this morning that's in group number one, they're a Christian, but they've been distracted. They've been, they're not really fully vested in following Christ, They've been distracted by the things of the world. And they realize today they want to drive a stake in the ground. They're done playing games with the things of the world. They want to treasure Christ fully. God, I pray right now that you would free them from their sin and the things that they're desiring more than Jesus and that their affections would be fully on Jesus. For so the one that's not yet in the family, that's you today. Pray this with me. It's not magic about the prayer man. It's just an opportunity to do business with God, God, I've been living life the way I want to, and, I re- and it's left me in a mess. I want to be one of your children, God. I want to be a prince or princes of the Most High God. And so I acknowledge today that doing things my own way is sin. And Jesus, you died for that sin on the cross for me, you took my punishment, and you bodily rose from the grave. And so today, I turn from my sin and I receive Jesus as my rescue plan. And I want you in my life. I want the deposit of the Holy Spirit to transform me into the family resemblance. And God, for all of us, this, this journey, we, we get knocked down, we dust ourselves up, and we keep going. All of us as Christians, God, we, we do cling to you and praise you. And if we're honest, we don't do it perfectly. And we want to do it more in this process of sanctification. And so, God, help us to cling to Jesus more. And as we go out singing, God, may this song remind our hearts and minds of this truth of just how much we need Jesus from beginning to end until the faith, our faith becomes sight. And it's in Jesus' most precious name I pray, amen.